Good morning, City Light Church. My name is Mo. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, if this is your first time joining us, this is kind of normal. Uh, but uh, we've been walking through Second uh, Samuel, looking at the life of David, who is God's anointed king. And actually, in First Samuel chapter 13, God says that David is a man that's after his own heart, which means that David is a man that seeks after God. However, Last week, if you were here, we, we talked about how David had this massive failure on his part. He, he uh, took another man's wife and slept with her. He, he got her pregnant, and then to cover up that sin, uh, he had that man killed. So it's kind of uh, these two dichotomies going on where he's a man after God's own heart, but he had this massive moral failure. And what we found out is that we all are capable and still do sin against God. And some of us, we have some overtly evil sin that that everyone can see. And then some of us have these hidden sins that are equally as rebellious as the ones that are out in the open. And every single one of us has the potential to make one decision, make one mistake that will lead to the devastation that we see in David's life. And so we can't look at David and assume that we'd never do that or that we're, but that we're all capable of the same kind of evil atrocities that David had in chapter 11. And in the midst of that sin, we see that God doesn't just condone sin. He doesn't ignore sin, but he actually takes it very, very seriously. He takes it so seriously that by his grace, he doesn't just stand in neutrality on our sin, but by his grace and goodness, he comes forth and, and, and is indignant about sin. So, uh, I'd like to invite you on that, on that note to follow along with me in 2 Samuel chapter 12 as we continue to look at the life of David. And, and, and what I hope to do this morning is answer one question for us. Answer one question, and that question is, what does God do with our sin? If he doesn't ignore it and he, and he takes it very seriously, what does he do with our sin? How does God respond to our sin? And so to unpack that, let's pick it up in verse 1 through 9. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had brought. And he brought it up and, and grew it up uh, with him and with his children. It, w- it, was used, it used to eat of his morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take his, one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Now Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you out of the hands of Saul, and I gave you the master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah, and if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife and killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. So my first point this morning is that our loving Father provides conviction. 
Our loving Father provides conviction. So God sent Nathan to David, and Nathan tells David this story of an injustice, uh, probably knowing that because David's a man after God's own heart, how he was going to respond. And so, so when he hears of the injustice, when David hears that, he's enraged, right? Like he's, he's just ticked off about what just went, what happened. And he goes so far as to say, man, this guy deserves to die and not only die, but also pay it back fourfold. Now, this wasn't a weird thing for David because David was king and it was a part of his rule and reign and authority to pronounce a sentence or judgment on someone's crime. However, there was only one of those two consequences that were actually the the, the proper sentence for what took place. So, so, So by God's law, it was proper for that person, if they stole something from someone, to pay it back fourfold. But he said, man, no, no, not only that, but you're going to die too. And so why would David go so far and, and really, I mean, have an overreaction to this particular crime? Why was he so indignant about it? Well, I believe it's because he just sinned massively. Here, here's what I mean by that, that when we've sinned and have covered it up, we have this tendency to look at other people's sin or atrocities and elevate them as a, a wrongdoing or injustice above and beyond what we've already done right? Isn't that the human tendency to to take our sin that we've covered up and make us feel a little bit better about ourselves because we're like, well, we're not as bad as that person. This isn't as bad as what they did. And we try to basically level the ground, so to speak, or even just make ourselves look a little bit more righteous than the next person. And, And that's what David's doing here with this particular story. But by God's grace, Nathan is using this story to actually confront David. You see, David uh, sinned actually, sin was essentially what this story was about. This story wasn't a true story. It was a, it was a parable or a, a story that symbolized something. And it symbolized that, David, you're the one who stole the poor man's ewe lamb, and you're the one that killed, that, that killed Uriah, essentially. Like he's drawing a parallel between the two. And so that's why we have this famous verse in here, in verse 7, where Nathan says, you are the man. Now, it's not the way we would say, you the man. Like, it's like, you are the man who sinned. Uh, and so he calls him out, right? Just takes him to the mat right away. He doesn't hold back from him. He tells David that your anger, your frustration, your indignation should not be pointed toward this, but it should be pointed toward yourself. Nathan was sent by God to confront David on his sin. And up until this point, David was actually blind to the severity of his sin, Right? So, so God sent a friend in love to confront him. Now, don't, isn't that something that we all need, right? So, so sometimes I think we walk through life with this, this, this kind of pride that says, I'm very, very self-aware. I can see the things in my life, the error in my life, until someone brings up the fact that you didn't see this error, and usually our response to that is, is pride, right? We, we'll try to def- deflect it to something else or try to blame shift what we've done or defend ourselves in some way. When we're caught in our sin, we, we need someone to come to us and call us on our sin. We need someone with a better vantage point to look at our life and say, hey, I see an error in this, and this could be troubling for you. What God did for David is, is one of the most loving things that he does for us. He sends someone to confront us on our sin. Now, I'm not sure we always see it that way. I know I didn't before I even came to the text that, that when someone comes, a friend, a loved one, a, or even a stranger for that matter, to call me and confront me on my sin, I don't always see it as God lovingly sending someone to me. But maybe some of us in the room have someone right now that's trying to call us on that. And I want to ask, how are you responding to it? 
Like, how is your heart responding to this display of God's love of confronting you on your sin? Are you ignoring it, or are you receiving it? Are you explaining it away, or are you taking it in and understanding it? Or maybe God is calling you to be a Nathan. Maybe God is calling you to confront somebody else on their sin, and you're ignoring that call. I have a friend who's a pastor, and he had, he had a, a, a former co-worker that he shared a story with me about. He said, uh, I, I saw my friend, and his marriage was, was struggling, but I said in my heart, ah, they'll be okay. And then I noticed my friend start to show up to activities and, and events at the church without his wife, and I said, oh, they'll be okay. And then I saw my friend being extra friendly with another woman in my church, and I said, Oh, I'm sure it's nothing. And then what happened was that that marriage that was intentioned turned into a distant marriage. And then that distant marriage turned into an emotional affair with another woman. And then that emotional affair turned into an actual physical affair and destroyed the man's life. And my pastor friend said, that is one of the deepest regrets of my life because I didn't step out and confront my friend when I saw it. See, we have the opportunity to distract from a person, a friend, a loved one from destroying their own life, or we have the opportunity to receive that confrontation so that we don't destroy our own lives with our own sin. And it's, it's all seemingly harmless on the surface, but at the end of the day, if we don't call people to the mat on that, then they can continue to walk down that, and it's a slow fade into destroying their life. And so David's heavenly father here was providing conviction by showing him that he had sinned against God. He he not only showed him that he sinned against God, but he also showed him the severity of that sin. In verse 7 and 8, God reminds David of all the blessings that God has given him. He essentially sets out a resume of all the blessing in David's life. And so when God does this, he shows David the sin beneath David's sin, meaning the sin that is actually driving the external ramifications of sin. It's the deeper reality of it, and that deeper reality from all of sin is discontentment in our hearts. And so God's telling David, hey, I've given you everything. Remember last week, Ricky talked about, man, when you're looking and saying, man, the grass is greener on the other side, that's that moment when you need to reflect and say, man, I need to take care of my own grass. I have already been given grass. Stop looking at that grass. And so David, he's saying, man, I've given you everything. I've given you a kingdom. I've given you wealth. I've given you life and breath and success, etc. I've given you so much, and you're still choosing to take something else that's not yours. You weren't satisfied with what I've already given you. And that's what Nathan's story is pointing to as well. He's saying you are the rich man with everything you could ever want, and yet you stole the one lamb from the poor man. You stole the the wife Bathsheba from Uriah. That's you. You are the man. And my kids do the same thing, right? So, So I have four children, and I promise you, if I give them a gift, a lot of times the response is, I want something different. Or, so here's what happens, I buy you a, a blue truck, and you're like, I wanted the purple truck. Or, I'll, buy, I'll give you a cookie, a treat, a snack after dinner, and here's a chocolate chip cookie, and they're looking over, well, that one has two more chocolate chips on it. Like, isn't that the response of, uh, of our kids? But let me tell you, that's actually deeply rooted in us from the beginning, 
The apex of all creation, the first two human beings that walked the face of the earth, Adam and Eve, were told by God, hey, you can have everything, the entire planet, everything on it is yours. Be fruitful, multiply, flourish, fill the earth, but don't touch this one thing. One thing. And we know the the end of that story, right? Chapter 3, you flip over and what happens? That one thing was the thing that trumped everything. They weren't satisfied with what they had. And this is the main thrust of our sin, too. We want what we can't have, and we want what we don't already have, so therefore we sin. We're not satisfied with what we've been given. So, so think about it. What are you right now thinking that you need to have in order to be happy or happier or more content? Just think about it. Think, think about what that one thing is right now that you're thinking, man, if I get there, then I'll be good. Is it a better spouse? A better job? A, a, one more car in your driveway? A nicer house? Uh, one more upgrade? Uh, one more, a smarter kid? Less drama? More money? More relationships? A bigger raise? More vacations? More of what you already have in your possession? Is that what it is? What is it? See, this is why sin is so offensive to God. Because he's given us so much down to the very breath and air that you breathe. He's given to you. And then not only that, he's saying, man, I sent my son to die for you in your discontentment and sin. I've given you so much and still that's not enough. You want more. He's pleading with us saying, you can be happy in me. The more that you're looking for, the upgrade that you're looking for, the peace that you're looking for, the love that you're looking for, that's me. I'm enough. I am God. Just see what I've done for you. See what I've given to you. See who I am to you. I am enough. So, So what do we do? Is there any hope for our discontentment in our hearts? Well, I think remembering the grace of God that he's lavished upon us will stop the spiral of discontentment that we have in our hearts. I think it'll start to slow and even stop it if we start to keep a ledger of, man, how much has he blessed me? I believe discontentment can be completely uh, taken out and turned into praise and adoration for what he's given us. Our wants, our desires can be replaced with worship and service. So so try a small activity with me for a second. Close your eyes for a minute, everybody. And start thinking about the things in your life that you have but don't deserve. Just think about it. The things in your life that you have that you don't deserve. Think about it. I'll wait. Start making a list. Now keep your eyes closed still and list the things that you don't have that you think you deserve. Start making that list. I'll wait. Okay. So which, which list was bigger? Right? Like it was clearly the, the, the blessing list, right? The list that we have an abundance of things that we don't deserve, and it's a very short list of things that we think we deserve that we don't already have. And so, and so when we see how blessed we are by God, we're going to have a hard time being entitled and trying to grab hold of all of our discontented wants, right? 
I'm so humbled to be on staff with a City Light Church. I I promise you, I would be an intern at a City Light Church because of this one thing alone. So they've established a culture over the last five years of all the five church plants that we have that the first work day of the week, other than Sunday, we gather as a staff and we, we, we pray and we uh, praise. We pray and we praise. And, and what we do is we, we start to ask the staff around, man, what has God been doing? What is God up to in your life, in the church's life, in the city? And we just start to praise God for all of the blessing that he's poured out in and through our churches. I'm humbled by that reality that I even get to be a part of that. And so what if God's people had a pattern or a culture of celebration and praise rather than grumbling and discontentment? What if that was our culture instead, that we would be a celebratory and a praise family rather than discontented, grumbling people? Listen, this is how we fight sin. This is exactly how we fight sin, is is that when it comes to the place of our desires and discontentments and wants, we get to fight it because we see that those desires, those wants, are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. God convicts David here in this passage of his sin by pointing out, hey, and showing him that, man, you have sinned against me because of your discontentment. And then the, the amazing thing about all of that is that he meets David right where he is, and he meets us right where we are, and doesn't let us stay there. Which gets us to the next section here. Let's uh, dive back in in verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbors and he will, shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. So my second point is our loving father provides correction. Our loving father provides correction. So, Let me explain something real quick. God's grace is totally and utterly sufficient payment for forgiveness of all of our sin, past, present, and future. There's no longer a debt to be paid against God. There's no longer an eternal consequence or punishment for our sins if we are in Christ, which is amazing, right? But it doesn't absolve us from the earthly consequences that may come from our sin. And in this passage, David's sin is forgiven by God. We see, we see his true repentance in, in verse 13 where he confesses, hey, I've sinned against God, which means he acknowledges that he has sinned against the holy God, broken God's law. And in that moment, God says, mercy, grace. God says to David, you will not die. But it doesn't change the reality that there's going to be a ripple effect into the future of his family, right? In fact, every cause always has an effect, Right? And so let me confess, when I look at this, it is very hard for me to deal with because generally speaking, when we think of forgiveness, we don't think of any kind of repercussion or response for the offended party, right? So, so, so what are they getting at here? And so when we talk about God's response when it comes to sin, I think there's two different kinds of consequence that we can talk about. One consequence is punishment, and the other one is discipline. Punishment, discipline. 
So, so Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, meaning the, the cost, the payment, the punishment for sin is eternal hell. Separation from God, that's, that's what deserve, is deserved from sin. That's the punishment. That's consequence for sin. But what about those who've received grace and forgiveness from the Lord? Then, then what do we do with that? Like, do Christians get punished by God? Well, no. No, no we don't get punished by God. There, there is a consequence for our sin, though. There's not a punishment, but a consequence. The Bible actually uses the word discipline when it defines some of the ramifications of our sin. The consequence is more of a natural result of a bad or sinful decision in our life. So discipline is not a, a punitive thing. It's not a penalty for our sin, but actually a corrective guiding love of God. But let me show you Hebrews uh, 12, verse 5 through 7. Here's, here's what it says. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as a son. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? So our God is a, is a good father who corrects and disciplines us. And when he forgives us of our sins, it doesn't negate the fact that, man, I have to discipline you so I can correct you and point you in the right direction. God isn't looking to make us get forgiveness again and place us back in right standing before him. We already have that. We already have grace upon grace upon grace. And if we are in Christ, our pursuit is to be more like Jesus. And so when we receive the, the discipline of the Lord, it's to point us back to Jesus. However, as a, as a loving father, he, he, the, the reason why he has to do this, because he knows the depths of our sins still causes death. It still destroys. It still wreaks havoc on our life, and it still offends him. So know, know that the discipline of the Lord is not a punishment, but it's a discipline. It's not a punishment, but it's a discipline. And if, if we're to be more and more like Jesus, this is exactly what we need. God is helping us to grow not only in a knowledge of him, but in an understanding of him and what it looks like to walk with him. It's not a punitive thing. Now, God in this story decrees several consequences for David, right? That, that we're actually going to ripple into his life later on. It's going to affect family member after family member after family member. However, there is one in particular that's very troubling, most likely, it's probably been bothering most of our hearts in the room since we read it. It's found in verse 14. Let me read it. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. So let me address that real quick. This is really important, so you want to listen up. This does not mean that every instance of a child dying or a miscarriage is the discipline of the Lord for the sins of the parents. Let me say that again. This does not mean that every instance of a child dying or a, a miscarriage is out of the discipline of the Lord for the sins of the parents. That's not what it's saying. 
In fact, that would be a misunderstanding of God's word and of God himself as well. It's completely false to think of it that way. We know a lot of people who are far off from God, who don't know Jesus Christ, who have perfectly healthy babies. And we also have friends and family members who know Christ, who serve Christ and love Christ, who have had five miscarriages this year alone. So that's not what this text is saying. We live in a fallen world where there is pain, there is suffering, and there's always the question marks of what the heck is going on. But in this particular case here, we know exactly because God is speaking through Nathan to David about the consequences for David's sin. That's what we're getting at here. David committed sin against God and others. And the one who, who can forgive sin and had forgiven David, but there's, there's, all, there's a consequence to that. There's a loving discipline on David in this moment. And so as the story continues on and moves forward, what Nathan, Nathan leaves David and what he says is going to happen actually does happen. The child did get sick, and, and, and David goes into just a devastation as any father would, Right? And so he goes into a room and locks himself in it, doesn't eat, doesn't do anything but plead with the Lord on his knees, mourning for seven days. And he was just pleading with the Lord that maybe he might be swayed to change his mind. So, so to understand this pleading, we see the severity and the depths of it actually if we look at in verse 18 when his son actually does die. His servants are afraid of him. They're afraid to come in and deliver the news to him because they're like, man, he's going to hurt himself. He's on his knees pleading. He's being crazy right now because he's so dis- devastated. We don't know what he's going to do. However, when, we, when, he, when he finds out that his son had died, he has a, a peculiar response. Let's pick it up in verse 20. Then David arose from the earth and and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. My final point this morning is our loving Father provides repentance and comfort. He provides repentance and comfort. So as I said, this response is confusing, right? So, so he gets off the ground, cleans himself up, and walks into the house of the Lord and worships him. And, and then he starts eating dinner, which doesn't make any sense. Because typically when someone we love dies, what happens? Well, we, we go to that place of mourning and pleading. And so David is praising the Lord and eating instead? So he, he gives us a clue into why that is the case. So David tells his servants that the day's While his child was sick, he knows that God is gracious and merciful and could possibly choose to be merciful even to spare his son's life here. So for those days, he pled. He got on his knees, he got on his face and begged the Lord that he would change his mind and give mercy here. 
However, when his son does die, David knows there's no need anymore to plead with the Lord for this mercy. It's done. It's already over. And look at his character here, though. Look at the character in this situation of David. It's a beautiful display of what repentance can look like, that God would grant him repentance here, because there's no bitterness toward God to be found in David here. There's no anger toward God here. He's not blaming God here. He's not crying foul play on God's part because he knows that it's his own fault. He knows that his sin bore this consequence. And so God gave him grace, gave him grace by allowing him to have life, but he didn't allow for the ramifications of that sin not to discipline and correct him. And at the end of verse 23, we get a glimpse as to why David would be comforted even in the midst of that. He's comforted in the fact that his son is not gone forever. One day, because of God's grace, he will go and he will be with his son again. Listen, I can't tell you chapter and verse as to what happens to a baby when they die. I can tell you what I know to be true and believe. David here has the utmost confidence that he will see his son again post-life here. I know that God can do whatever he wants, even if it means placing faith in an infant in the womb. We see that with John the Baptist in the Gospels, right? It says that he, he had the Spirit of the Lord come upon him in the womb. And what I also know is that the God that I serve is a good, good God. And if I can trust him to give his own son to die for my sin, I can trust him with my babies. Because they're better in his hands than they are in mine any day. That's what I know to be true. That's what I can tell you. Now, David was called by God a man after his heart. David did have a lapse in judgment and and made an awful decision that had dire consequences in it. However, in verse 13, he confesses that sin to God and says, hey, I repent. And then we see in verse 20, the response after repentance is worship. This is what we get the opportunity for, that we don't have to minimize our sin or blame other people or rationalize it. We have to own our sin. Then in seeing our sinfulness between, before a holy God, it can move us to worship. And here's why. When we're honest about our sin before God and the depths of it, we have this beautiful opportunity to see how gracious he's been to us. By sparing our life, and not only that, but sending his son to die on our behalf so that we might have life forever. That's why. That's why he was moved to worship. He understood the amount of grace that he was given. Repentance isn't a talk with God saying, hey, sorry God, I messed up. That's not what that is. It's an acknowledgement of our sin before a holy and good God and turning from that and looking to him. Looking at him because we've been blessed with an irrevocable grace that he continues to lavish upon us here and now, sin after sin, moment after moment, day after day. While we may have trials from God's discipline or even just the sinfulness of the world, we can turn to God in worship, praise, and contentment. Because he's worthy of all of it. 
He is greater than any sin that we can commit past, present, or future. He's far more valuable than anything that we can want or desire. And in his grace, let me tell you something. It is okay to not be okay. Because he meets you right there and moves you on to new life in that moment. So let's make this a little bit practical for everybody in the room. So like David, we need God to send someone into our life to be a Nathan, to love us enough to call us out on our sin. Because if no one points it out to us, we don't have the opportunity to repent and worship. So we need someone to come and call us out on that so, if, so that we can repent and worship God. And, and what can, the beautiful thing about that, it, it moves beyond that. Because by God's grace, if we repent of our sin against others in God, we might even have the opportunity to comfort those who we've sinned against. In verse 24 and 25, he goes to Bathsheba and comforts her because he has sinned against her as well. And so the application one, number one, would be hear and receive who God has sent to call you out on your sin. Hear and receive who God has called you out on your sin, who he's sent to call you out on your sin. Application number two, be that person to somebody else. I'm not saying be the sin police in somebody's life. That's, that's not our job to be the sin police in somebody's life. But if you catch a brother or sister in sin, call them on it. Fight the temptation in your heart to be passive and sin yourself by omitting what you know you should do. Fight that. Tell them anyway. Don't be passive about it because you could save a brother and sister from destroying their own life. Don't wait until it's too late. Call them on their sin so that they have the opportunity to repent, faith in Jesus, and worship our King. So, application number two, be like Nathan and call someone you love on their sin. It's the loving thing to do. But can I, can I be a Nathan this morning for some of you in the room? If you've not placed your faith in Jesus, can, can I just be a Nathan right now and say, hey, you've sinned against a good and holy God. For, for those who haven't received Christ and believed him and in faith, hear me when I say this. It is true that the wages of sin is death. The just, the good punishment for that, it has to be done. And you've sinned against the one who created you, who loves you. The consequences for that sin is a punishment in hell. And, and I'm not saying that to scare you. I'm saying that because I know my sin and your sin produces actual death. However, Jesus came and died so that that death on him produced life in us. That's why I'm pleading with you. We, we can't be good enough. We can't do enough good things to outweigh our bad things to earn it. No, the only thing we can do is trust in Jesus' death to be enough. So please, confess. Confess that you're powerless to own it on your own. Confess that you've sinned against the Holy God and trust that his love, his grace on Jesus was enough payment for your sins and mine. Man, God's calling you right now. Will you repent? Will you turn from your sin and look to him as more beautiful than anything you could want or desire? You can do that today. Would you worship him? And guess what? For the followers of Jesus in the room, the way you gain salvation is actually the same way you walk by faith. It doesn't change, actually. Our lives should be marked by a continual repentance and faith, worship, and repeat. Repentance, faith, worship, repeat. 
Because none of us are exempt from sin in our life. However, none of us are outside the grace of God. When we repent of our sin, it allows our hearts to be like David's and have a heart that's after God. Amen? Let's pray.